0: Welcome to the Untold History of the United States. In today's episode, we will be covering the Vietnam War under the administrations of Lyndon B. Johnson and Richard Nixon. This war defined a whole generation of people and has had a lasting legacy. However, most of the American public still does not have a full understanding of this war and what it served. Professor Kuznick is here today to help us uncover this. Thank you for coming on the show. Glad to be with you, Matt. So, Professor, we've talked a little bit about the Vietnam War in previous episodes, but can you talk about the transition between JFK's administration and LBJ's administration amidst the the Vietnam War?
1: Well, it's interesting that the last year, that Kennedy was in office, he had a very clear change of heart on a lot of issues. And one of them was Vietnam. And he started signaling to a lot of people that once he got reelected in 1964, one of his priorities would be to get the U.S. out of Vietnam. Kennedy had visited Vietnam during the French war, and he understood how dangerous colonialism was and how unpopular the United States was in Vietnam. So Kennedy was very aware of that uh, and was moving in uh, NSAM, National Security Action Memo 263. Uh, It called for removing 1,000 troops before the end of 1963 and having all the US troops out by 1965. He told a number of people that that was his intention. I can list about 12 of them who he said that to. His public statements were a little bit misleading uh, because he thought that that what was necessary to appease the public. And that was a big mistake on his part. Right. Uh, but after his assassination, Johnson immediately took a hawkish position. He had a meeting with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and advisors the second day in office. And he assured them that he was going to double down on the U.S. commitment in Vietnam. Uh, which he proceeded to do, even though he was somewhat ambivalent in his, the first year or so in the office, he was also very concerned about the political ramifications if he pulled out of Vietnam. He was afraid that Robert Kennedy was going to accuse him of being a coward and that Robert Kennedy would attack him from the right. And that, and that plus other political motivations really influenced him. So five days or so after he took office, he replaced National Security Action Memo 263 with National Security Action Memo 273. And that called for a much more hands-on approach by the United States in Vietnam. Uh, That reaches fruition in a certain sense with the Gulf of Tonkin in uh, August of 1964.
0: Johnson and his administration had very little knowledge about Vietnam's history, as you pointed out, correct? Well, Johnson
1: had very little knowledge. Uh, this goes back to the purging of the uh, experts in the State Department during the McCarthy period, purging of all the experts who really knew anything about Vietnam as being soft on communism, uh, they knew anything about Asia in general. And the American uh, troops, they didn't know anything about it uh one of the you know it's 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 interesting how blindly we were operating in vietnam and we didn't really understand what was going on we didn't understand that ho chi minh and general giap were more nationalists than they were communists they might have been communists also but this was really a nationalist effort and the american troops knew nothing about vietnam one of my favorite stories is one that was told by Larry Heinemann. Uh, Larry won the National Book Award for his novel, Paco's Story. He was a US infantryman in Vietnam. Uh, And later he was at a conference in Hanoi in 1990, and he met a Hanoi University professor of American literature, Nguyen Lien, and uh, and Heinemann uh, relayed their conversation. He said, I asked him what he did during the war, He said that his job was to go to Beijing and learn English, and then go to Moscow University to read and study American literature. Then he went back to Hanoi and out to the Ho Chi Minh Trail and gave lectures on American literature to the troops traveling south. He talked to them about Whitman, Jack London, Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, and he said that a lot of the Vietnamese soldiers carried translations of American literature in their backpacks as they were fight- going down the Ho Chi Minh trail. Uh, and then uh, Professor Lien said uh, Larry, Larry says, Professor Lien then asked me this question. He says, now what Vietnamese literature did the American military teach to you? Right. Uh, and, and he said, I laughed so hard, I almost squirted beer up my nose. The American troops didn't know anything about Vietnamese culture, Vietnamese mm-hmm. history, and American leaders didn't know anything either. So we were in this situation, acting out of complete ignorance and this assumption of superiority, uh, and um, you know, and, and we blundered into a horrible bloodbath that we created, a nightmare of our own making, in which fifty-eight thousand two hundred eighty Americans died. And according to Robert McNamara, when he came into my class, McNamara was the U.S. Secretary of Defense and considered the mastermind behind the war. McNamara admitted to my students that he accepted that 3.8 million Vietnamese died in the war. And the one unifying thing for my students is when I ask them, uh, they all say that they've been to the Vietnam Memorial. The Vietnam Memorial is a very powerful uh, it's got the names of all 58,280 Americans who died in the war. It's, uh, and it, it's 492 feet long. Mm-hmm. If it also contained the names of 3.8 billion uh, Vietnamese, uh, the other U.S. allies, uh, and the Cambodians and Laotians who died in the war, it would be more than eight miles long. And that would be a fitting monument to the Vietnam War. The lesson one draws from the Vietnam War Memorial now is that the tragedy of Vietnam was that 58,280 Americans died. That was a tragedy, but that's not the real tragedy. The real tragedy is the entire group of 5 million people who died in that war. And we still don't even call it, we call it the war in Vietnam not the US invasion of Vietnam. We talk about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, but we don't talk about the US invasion of Vietnam and that's what it was.
0: And professor, you were a young man during that time period. Can Um, you talk a little bit about the anti-war movement and how Johnson tried to suppress it?
1: The anti-war movement was quite powerful at the time. Uh, And especially after I remember going back to campus in this after the summer of 68 and uh, by the fall of 68, uh, the anti-war sentiment was overflowing. Whereas when I left before the summer and that was the summer of the Democratic Convention in Chicago, which the police riot occurred. uh, But before that point, the majority of students on campus were still ambivalent about the war. When I came back in September of 68, the overwhelming sentiment was against the war, which is one of the things I find so troubling now. Young Americans now are quite progressive in their views about the environment, their views generally about foreign policy, uh, their views about uh, the Republican Party. You know, There's very little support, no support for Trump in any of my classes, just about zero. Uh, but according to the Gallup poll, the latest one that I saw, which is now a few years back, 51% of 18 to 29 year olds in the United States say the Vietnam war was not a mistake, that the Vietnam war was worth fighting. Mm-hmm. These, these students are very, very ignorant when it comes to Vietnam. It's the older generation, it's my generation that's so still so strongly critical of the Vietnam war. But young Americans don't learn very much about it. So we're still confronting that high degree of ignorance, which is quite disturbing.
0: And you pointed out in 1968, the election. So LBJ decides not to run in 1968 amidst the full escalation of the war. Well, why was that? Was that a political maneuvering on his part?
1: Well, in a sense, it was political maneuvering on his part. He had become very, very unpopular. You know, the, the chance at the anti-war marches were, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Uh, people would, would be saying, uh, Viet, um, Johnson, pull out like your father should have. And very, you know, Johnson was a vilified, hated figure, uh, certainly among the students and the protesters in general. And, uh, and because he was so unpopular, Uh, he did decide that he was not going to run again for re-election in 68. Uh, But he did hope that he was going to be drafted by the Democratic Convention to run again. But after the riots in the streets in Chicago, and again, I have to emphasize, it was a police riot. You know The problems that we're seeing with the police in the United States today, and the problem we saw with the police in response to the Black Lives Matter movement uh, is something that existed in the 1960s, too, that the police have always been a bastion of right-wingers. And when they were given carte blanche to go after the protesters in Chicago in 68, they happily did so with their clubs and their uh, the rest of their equipment. And so it was a police riot, but they attacked not only the protesters, they attacked the media, which changed the uh, the narrative about what happened there in Chicago in '68, but again, the public, by a two-to-one margin, said that they supported the police and not the protesters. So we've got we've had this reactionary, neo-fascist strain in American politics for a long time, and some of them came out in '68 in response to the uh, response to the war, really, and the, what we had in this United States in the '60s was basically a civil war between the Nixon's silent majority and the overt right-wingers and the progressives. And the progressive movement at that point was spearheaded by the students and the anti-war activists.
0: And you just mentioned uh, Richard Nixon. So his campaign was based on law and order, as you know. And so he gets sworn in in 1969. And what was his approach to the Vietnam War?
1: Well, Nixon had run in part as a peace candidate. There was a strange reversal mm-hmm. because Humphrey, who actually was a peace candidate, one of the things we didn't know at the time, and I try to point this out to my some of my friends on the left who say that there's no difference between the Democrats and Republicans. They're both capitalist, imperialist parties. And there's a little bit of truth to that sometimes. There is still a uh, Hillary Clinton, centrist, corporate, uh, pro-war, hawkish faction within the Democratic Party. And sadly, Biden represents some of that, although his history is a little bit more complicated on that. Right. But what I point out to, to these people, some of whom are friends who I work with, is that It's a good example of the difference is what happened in 68. Humphrey had been vice president for four years. Before Humphrey became vice president, he was kind of a progressive liberal, pro-civil rights and and progressive on a lot of issues. But then as vice president, he kowtowed to Johnson and said that letting the uh, Viet Cong into a coalition government would be like letting the fox into the hen house. So we hated him. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, and and so in '68, I remember speaking at teach-ins, big teach-in at, at Rutgers University, where I was an undergraduate, and I basically said that there was no difference between the Democrats and Republicans, and the the anti-war movement and the protest movement was strongly opposed to Humphrey. Some people supported Kennedy, others supported McCarthy, but we really dis- disparaged and and uh, hated. Uh, Humphrey. The reality that we didn't know at the time but later came out was that Humphrey really behind the scenes was very strongly opposed to the war, was counseling Johnson, frozen out by Johnson because of Humphrey's opposition, and had Humphrey gotten elected in 68 instead of Nixon and Humphrey lost by the narrowest of margins, not like the stupid Trump, you know, losing by seven million votes, Humphrey almost won in 68. Uh, Had he won, there would be several million people still alive, right. at, least, at least 2 million more Vietnamese who would be alive, because Humphrey would have ended the war. So there is a difference, you know, and, and we have to recognize that difference. Nixon comes in there and he said he has a secret plan for ending the war. What was his secret plan? It was his policy of Vietnamization. What did that mean? It meant withdrawing American troops, supporting the Vietnamese to take over the fighting and trying to bomb the hell, out of the Vietnamese people, uh, South Vietnam, North Vietnam. Uh, the uh, most vicious, brutal bombing campaign in history is what the US conducted under Nixon and Kissinger. You know, one of the obscenities of this war was Henry Kissinger winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Right. At, least the, at least the Vietnamese co recipient had the decency to turn it down, saying that the war is not over. Kissinger who accepted it uh, really was the architect of the second phase of the war. And he knew better. And, uh, and when Dan Ellsberg released the Pentagon papers, you might've seen that it's just announced in today's uh, papers that Neil Sheehan died. Right. And Neil Sheehan was the liaison between Dan Ellsberg and the New York Times for publishing the Pentagon papers. And, uh, You know, so we knew about the lies. We knew about that that administration after administration had lied us into that war. And that's what Dan found so appalling when he participated in writing the Pentagon Papers for McNamara and then copying 7,000 pages of highly classified material that Dan thought was going to land him in jail for 115 years. And by doing so, because he thought that if the public knew the extent of government lying, that there was a chance it could end the war. Dan was not naive enough to think that it would end the war, but he thought it might help end the war. And so he was really willing to risk uh, what almost happened to him. Uh, But Nixon's blundering undermined that as well. Nixon sent out a hit squad to silence Dan, basically, plus a lot of other illegal activities that finally got the judge to throw the case against Dan on the Sedition uh, Sedition Act, uh, an Espionage Act out out of court, but it also led to Nixon's downfall in Watergate.
0: And Professor, uh, what led Kissinger and Nixon to expand the war into Cambodia and Laos?
1: Uh, they felt that that was the well, the the um, North Vietnamese were using Cambodia as a sanctuary, and so that was really the motivation. We've been bombing uh, Laos since what 64 and Cambodia since 69 secretly, but then we escalated and sent troops into Cambodia in what was April uh, or early May, I guess it was of 1969. The U.S. had big plans in '69. One was the, cam- the invasion of Cambodia uh, and the increased bombing in Cambodia and Laos, and invasion of Laos as well. Uh, the other was uh, Operation Duck Hook, which Nixon oversaw, which called for a savage, savage policy of bombing and destruction in Vietnam. Roger Morris Uh, Said that he saw the documents that called for the use of nuclear weapons in Vietnam as part of this savage war that that son of a bitch, Kissinger, masterminded and for which he, uh, despite which he got the Nobel Peace Prize. There have been several travesties along those lines. Uh, Barack Obama receiving the Nobel Peace Prize was a somewhat lesser example of that, but again, certainly unwarranted. But there have been others also. Uh, but um, so so. But what's the prevented Operation Duck Hook was the Vietnam Memorial, uh, the, the moratorium on October fifteenth, nineteen sixty-nine, when two million people protested, and then the march on Washington in November of nineteen sixty-nine, in which nearly a million people came to Washington to protest. And the anti-war sentiment was so strong that Nixon and Kissinger decided to call off Operation Duck Hook. But uh, their planning and scheming and bombing and death and destruction certainly did not end with that.
0: And uh, Professor, so can you talk a little bit about what led up to the Paris Peace Accords of 1973, how it was orchestrated?
1: Uh, The anti-war sentiment became so pervasive. Uh, Congress was taking action to uh, cut off funding. Uh, they, Nixon, by that point, did not have any options, really. He had run out of options. Uh, and they tried that December Christmas bombing, which was the heaviest bombing attack of the war. Uh, but the public outcry was enormous to that. And so they finally went went in there and accepted terms that were very similar to the terms that Johnson had negotiated back in late 68. And that Nixon sabotaged at that point, an act of treason, working with Claire Chenault uh, to, to tell the Tew government in, uh, in Saigon not uh, to hold off that, that if once Nixon got elected, that they'd be get uh, much better terms. Uh, and Nixon did support them. and uh, Kissinger played both sides. Kissinger made like he was a friend of Humphreys during the 68 election and he wanted he said uh, he's going to give him Nelson Rockefeller's shit files on Richard Nixon. and then he worked with Nixon to, in order to sabotage the negotiations, give Nixon intelligence that allowed him to sabotage the negotiations. I mean, Kissinger is one of the world's worst war criminals with so much blood on his hand and is considered this great statesman. God, what a an outrage.
0: Right. And I guess a lot of Americans don't officially know when, like what year, uh, maybe we can say what year the Vietnam War ended. But many say that the fall of Saigon is basically the end. Can you explain what happened uh, in 1975, April?
1: Well, the U.S. finally does withdraw its troops in 73. Mm-hmm. Uh, there uh, was supposed to be negotiations after that, but the clearly, I mean, this goes back to 54 with the original Geneva Accords in which they par- put, accepted the 17th parallel. as a temporary line of demarcation, not a permanent division. And the reason why, The North Vietnamese accepted that was because there were going to be uh, elections within two years. And as Eisenhower said, all the experts believed that Ho Chi Minh would win 80% of the vote and there'd be a communist government. Well, the same thing was supposed to happen in 73, but the uh, US-backed forces, of course, resisted any kind of unification. Uh, They knew they would be defeated and they continued to try to fight. Uh, by but the by seventy five the North Vietnamese and the National Liberation Front in the South just overwhelmed South Vietnamese forces. And there are all those scenes about the us withdrawal with the helicopters and people desperately trying to escape from the embassy in in Saigon. Uh, it was a, a pitiful ending to an obscene war. the worst, the most cruel vicious, brutal thing that had been witnessed since the uh, Holocaust. Uh, And, um, you know, and and it tarnished America's reputation. And now people are shocked by what's going on in Washington now with the Trump administration. But the decline of the United States really begins with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but then uh, is universally recognized in much greater scale after the Uh, with the debacle in in Vietnam, Uh, 75% of Americans, three quarters of all Americans said that they trusted their government to do the right thing before the war. After the war, uh, only a third of Americans said that they trusted their government to do the right thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. During Johnson, we had what was called a credibility gap where people stopped trusting their government if uh, they, they knew that the government was a pack of liars, a pack of murderers, at least some portion of the American people did. And uh, so the United States has never really recovered its reputation despite all of its pretenses of being America's source of good in the world. As Martin Luther King said, the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today.
0: And 50 years later, now that we're in 2021, do you still see many similarities between what the government is doing now and what the government did in the sixties and seventies?
1: Well, similarities in the sense that the government is still desperately trying to maintain American empire throughout the world. That that is the goal of American policy. Uh, Trump was more inept at that one might say than Obama was, but the, uh, They both wanted to maintain American hegemony, American unipolarity in a multipolar world. It just is not credible anymore, Uh, but the attempt to do so could still bring us all down. Uh, One of the big concerns with Trump being so uh, delusional and furious right now, clearly out of control, is that he still has access to the nuclear codes. And I'm glad to see this being so widely discussed and debated in the United States right now. But but Trump still does have the uh, power to end life on the planet, veto power over the future existence for our species. So uh, we have to, we're not out of of the woods yet. Uh, But uh, yeah, what we saw in Vietnam is the extent to which the US is willing to go the ruthlessness, the brutality, the barbarism that the US is willing to effectuate in order to try to maintain its hegemony. Or as Martin Luther King so eloquently said, a nation that goes on year after year, spending more money on the means of killing uh, than it does on the means of healing and uplift is a nation that has lost its soul. And the United States uh, Seoul really was buried in the jungles of Vietnam.
0: Professor, it was a great pleasure having you. It was my pleasure, Matt. Thank you for listening. The next time we come back, we will be introducing you to President Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at McGillian National Review for more up-to-date insight and analysis of global issues and international affairs.